studios in Orland. We've got our transmitter in Blue Hill at 89.9 and and in Bangor at 99.9. And, of course, if you're listening from Timbuktu, you're listening to us at WERU.org. Today, 60% chance of light rain becoming patchy fog. Chance of rain tonight, areas of fog 50%, a low of 39 tonight. Tomorrow, a high of 54 areas of fog, then mostly sunny um, in the afternoon. Wednesday night, partly cloudy, 28. Thursday, mostly sunny at 37. Thursday night, mostly clear and 18. We're going to be switching over to Wabanaki Windows in about one minute and 10 seconds, so stick with us while we do a little couple of promos here, and we'll be right back with you. Thanks to listener financial support, WERU is and always has been your source for diverse, local, and worldwide music and information. Become a member at 469-6600 or WERU.org. Thank you. Hi, this is Amy Brown inviting you to join me for Main Currents now on Tuesdays at 4 p.m., Listen live at 89.9 FM out of Blue Hill or 99.9 FM out of Bangor or live stream us at WERU.org where you can also check out our archives and subscribe to our podcasts. That's Main Currents, independent local news, views and culture every Tuesday afternoon at 4. Don't miss it. Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. her new book, uh, Sacred Instructions, uh, and believe me, it is an excellent book. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've read, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read many pieces of it and uh, have been fascinated uh, with it. So, uh, Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you, Donna. Uh, so, I think what we'd like to do, because this book is such an in-depth piece of work really is i mean we could spend i could spend a whole week just talking to you about this uh so what i'd like to do is just kind of lay a foundation about you know how you began to write this book uh your thoughts uh on why you decided to actually write the book mm-hmm. well i've been uh had the incredible honor of working with a group of spiritual elders from around the U.S., um, Canada, North, uh, Central and South America for the past 25 years. And in the course of that work, I've done a lot of writing for them, taking their messages and, and um, you know, kind of translating them into um, pieces that would be uh, broadly understood 
so that their point of view gets out to a large audience. And um, I've always been told by them, uh, you know, we, it's part of our our oral tradition is understanding that what we transfer verbally actually has a vibrational frequency that enhances um, the understanding of what's being taught to us. And that when we capture that in the written form, that, that um, a portion of that teaching gets lost. And so um, I've always been a writer and have always um, done a lot of work um, to promote and to create understanding around indigenous rights issues, around um, way of life, cultural way of being, and um, have never taken the full breadth of my own teachings and uh, shared them with a broader audience, uh, mostly because of the teachings of the elders in regard to the transmission of, of that deeper learning that is part of our oral tradition. And then in 2012, um, one of the elders that I had been working with for more than 20 years uh, his name was Bennett Lyons. He was an elder from uh, Arizona. And he and I sat together uh, before I came back to Maine for a full day in ceremony. And at the end of the day, uh, he told me that I had to do this, that this was, um, you know, one of my gifts and that it was my obligation to creation and to my own spirit to bring forth all of the things that I had been carrying within me and and send them out into the world. And he said that if I didn't do that, then I was going to get sick. And so um, it was in the back of my mind, and I, I held it there for a long time, and then I did get sick. And I started thinking about um, all the things that he had told me and, and really wanted to honor um, his presence in my life, to honor the presence of all of the elders that I've had the incredible honor to learn from over the years. And um, as a result of that, I sat down and started um, writing. And the book that ended up being written was not the book that I intended to write, but it is the book that needed to be written at that time. So, <clears throat> so just out of curiosity, um, once you brought all of these ideas together, and put them on paper and started to edit them and, you know, arrange them and write them, uh, I'm sure that a new sort of picture or whatever uh, came to being that you had never anticipated. Mm -hmm. So how did you feel about bringing all that information together? And uh, did you learn something new from that whole thing? <laughs> Well, you know, we always have our own ideas about how things are supposed to be, and I, I certainly had my own ideas about how things were supposed to be. And um, I ended up writing the book uh, in about three months because I I had, um, you know, my own idea about what it was supposed to be and had crafted an outline and the things that I wanted to include in it. When I actually sat down to do the writing, it was like stream of consciousness. It just the information that I think needed to be out in the world started flowing through in a whole different way. And then when I sat down and I read through the first edit of the book, 
um, I learned a considerable amount. I learned um, a number of lessons that I thought I had I had known previously on a much deeper level. Um, I think that that's true for a lot of people who really write from a place of of heart and and spirit. That when they read the things that they've written. They're learning along with all of those who are reading that work as well. So, I mean, I've, that's been my experience with this. When I sit down and I reread it, there are a lot of things that I'm being reminded of, and it's resonating with me on a much deeper level. Um, but also it's created a much more clear pathway for the work that I'm doing out in the world. It's created uh, because I've had all of these abstract themes you know, in my mind about how we're supposed to be doing this work, but it's really kind of... Uh, solidified for me what is our pathway towards creating the type of change that we hope to see in the world and what is the world that we hope to create out of this vision that we have we know what it's not but how can we vision what it is and what it's supposed to look like and how we're supposed to engage it and what our responsibilities are in creating it Hmm. before we get too deep into your book let's talk about the cover uh we don't, we don't, this isn't TV, but unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, <it's beautiful. clears throat> but maybe you can just talk about that cover because usually I know when I did my book, my cover was special. So mm-hmm. tell tell us about your cover. Yeah, this um, artwork is in, incredible. For those of you who can't see what we're seeing right now, I encourage you to go online and and look up Sacred Instructions, which is the title of the book, and. Um, look at the beautiful artwork on here that was created by one of the clan mothers from Eskinobidich, Jeannie Bartabo. And it's the seventh generation tree of life. And it's about us all sitting around this tree. You know, the women are sitting around this tree. But um, it's about really creating um, a world where new life can be born um, and sustained and nurtured and um, protected. And so we have this obligation to the seventh generation. And when I think about the pathway that's outlined in this book, it's really an introduction to a way of life. And so, um, you know, thinking about that way of life and about what we're hoping to create with it, what we've worked so hard to maintain as indigenous people, as, uh, you know, Skijinawe people, that um, we've maintained this way of life, which is uh, Skijinawe Bamausawagan, which is an indigenous way of life that's in harmony with the rest of creation. And, you know, we, we maintain that so that we retain our right to live here on Mother Earth. And what we're seeing now out in the world is a life way that's in opposition to the very force of life, that we are living in such a way that is preventing us from being able to move forward um, in a way that preserves and protects life. And so the cover of this book really is reminding us of our of our obligations and our responsibilities toward creating a new way of being in relationship to the world and the rest of creation that preserves life for our future generations. Okay. Um, now, the first... Uh the first section of your book uh, is uh, building a foundation, which uh, I think is, I think it's a really a really great way to begin your book, uh, and it sort of like coincides with a lot of stuff. I mean, like basket making, for instance. Everything has to have a foundation, mm-hmm. and uh, you start uh, you have uh, creation songs, uh, creation stories. Um, you've got the uh, the ash tree 
story. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that that's really foundational to our understanding of our place within creation, that um, we have a story within our own mythology that talks about Gluskap, who is the man from nothing. And uh, in that story, Gluskap shoots an arrow into an ash tree and opens a space where the Wabanaki people emerged into this world. And uh, what that's telling us is not that we were literally born out of an ash tree. It's telling us that we are born out of the same fundamental elements that make up the rest of creation. And that, um, you know, we are kin with the ash tree. We are kin with our waterways. We are kin with all of the other beings in the natural world. And so it's reminding us of a relationship um, and a relational aspect to our way of life that's supposed to be lived in harmony and respect with the rest of creation. And so when I think about the basket makers who make their baskets out of that ash tree, you know, even the process of making those baskets is reminding us that we are woven from the same elements that weave the rest of creation. And so it really keeps us mindful of how we fit into the larger scheme of life on this planet. Hmm. Um, the other thing is, I'm just going to read a paragraph from your book, and, and uh, you can fill in and you know, respond to it or whatever. I, some of these things I, I really found uh, uh, very interesting. And in this one, it's under your creation songs. And uh, you say, we will recognize that when the trees breathe in carbon dioxide and release oxygen, our lungs mirror that movement. By breathing in the oxygen that is generously given and releasing carbon dioxide back to the trees. When we merge our internal rhythms with the rhythms of creation, we develop grace in our movement, and without thought or effort, we are able to slide into the perfectly choreographed dance of life. Mm. I like that. That's great. Thanks. Did you write that? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody read a section to me at the at the book launch the other day, and I said, did I write that? <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, this actually is um, a reflection of an experience that I had uh, myself spiritually where... I um, have, from a very young age, been uh, had this insatiable hunger for spiritual knowledge and have really dedicated a large portion of my life um, to that pursuit. And so I had this experience one time where I was sitting in um, meditation outside and I was leaning up against this big oak tree and I was looking out over this field and... Um, I was able to just let go of my concept of who I was in relation to the rest of the world. And at the moment that that happened, I recognized that I was breathing with the rest of creation. And when that when that occurred, all of these lines and barriers that I thought existed between me and the rest of life kind of disappeared. And I had this real concrete understanding of what I thought was a theoretical um, wisdom that's been passed down about oneness, you know, about our understanding of oneness. And when we can see how we're really connected, when we see that the, the form and the lines and the barriers that we create, even between ourselves and the rest of creation, um, but between our 
our um, physical selves and who we truly are as spiritual beings, when we can transcend those barriers, we recognize that this concept of oneness is not theoretical, that it's actual fact. And um, it makes us look at the world very differently. It makes us understand our place in it because we tend to be very human-centric where we think that um, human beings are kind of at the top of the evolutionary ladder in regard to um, the place that we hold within creation. And that's completely untrue. You know, we are just one portion of this larger scheme of creation and we have responsibilities that are connected to those connections that need to be guiding the way that we engage our lives physically here on Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> just so our listeners know that I'm talking with uh, Sherry Mitchell, and we're talking about her new book, uh, Sacred Instructions. And uh, this is WERU, Wabanaki Windows. Uh, now, Sherry, the just to step further on that, topic you were just talking about the bottom of your I'm gonna have to read what you said because I think it's I think it's pretty good so you said you know after that experience in the field you said uh, there was suddenly no separation between me the ant the grass the trees and the birds we were breathing with one breath beating with the pulse of one heart I was consumed by this achingly beautiful and complete complete sense of kinship with the entire creation this single moment of open awareness allowed all of us, all of the teachings that I had been raised with to sink deeply into my heart. I got it. Yeah, I did. And I think that, you know, that really radically changed the way that I view the world and our place in it. Um, because when we other ourselves and um, when we other those that we are in relationship with in the world, then we're missing this whole underlying um, wisdom and that underlying wisdom is really um, about the evolution of our consciousness to see beyond these illusions of separation to see beyond these illusions of otherness to see beyond our ego-based ideas about who we are and who we're meant to be in the world that Um, when we can get to that place of real understanding of our fundamental, interrelated, interconnected, inextricable connections to the rest of life, we recognize that we cannot harm life in any form without harming ourselves. And we cannot harm ourselves without harming the rest of life. That we're so deeply connected that I can't heal unless Mother Earth is healed. Mother Earth can't heal unless I am healed. That there's this connection between us and the rest of life, even those who we oppose, uh, we're still connected with them. And the point is not to conquer those others. The point is to transcend our differences with those others so that we can integrate ourselves into a larger whole and all move forward together. And so, you know, we have a hard time getting to that place of really recognizing what is this idea of oneness um, really mean, you know, and there's another section in the book where I talk about oneness and say that oneness is not, does not equal sameness, that our goal is not to become homogenized and to not all become the same. Our goal is really to transcend our differences and to move beyond the illusions of separation that we've created so that we can integrate fully together and evolve consciously together as a larger whole. And, uh, 
just following that line. I'm going to run out of these quotes eventually, <laughs> but, but there's one, it's, you know, kind of following up on that. It says, we all originate from the same divine source, and we all return to that source when our learning is complete. During our journey, we will have many of the same experiences, seeing the world and one another from multiple angles and through multiple lifetimes. Sadly, there will also be times when we will lose sight of this basic fact. During those times, we will become lost in the unfolding stories of our own individual realities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, one of the challenges that we're facing during this really accelerated time of growth, that right now we're in this place of of really accelerated growth where we're being forced to face um, all of these concepts of otherness that we've created. And if we think about um, our minds as a film projector and we think about our thoughts as the film, uh, you know, how we've come to believe, what we've come to think, moving through our mind, those thoughts moving through our mind then get projected out onto the world in front of us and then we see the world that we've created And so we don't see ourselves beyond that created reality. And so the only way for us to do that is to really deepen our relationship with our true selves, with our higher selves, Um, step back from those illusions and be able to see the world, this larger view of creation um, that we're a part of. And so... Um, there have been experiences where I've that I've had. I talk about one of them um, in the book, and I and I don't talk about the full measure of these experiences. It's just really touching on on them. Um, but I had this other experience where I was driving down the street of uh, Main Street in the town where I grew up, or right next to the town where I grew up, and I was running out to get something um, for a cookout that we were having with family, and I was I was. Um, looking around and noticing all of the mullets and jean jackets, uh, you know, on Main Street and um, thinking about this stagnated way of thinking that kind of leaves us stuck in this same relationship with one another that is a derivative of the relationship that began, you know, under the Phipps Proclamation, how we have these ideas about one another that's really steeped in old ideas because um, our minds are trapped in the past. Like we're trapped in the past to the point where we can't imagine a new future. And so we're so identified with um, what's happened previously, which is important. It's important to know where we come from. It's important to understand how we got here. But we can't be trapped in the reservation of the mind that leaves us in that place. We have to be able to grow beyond that. And so, you know, I was sitting there in my car looking around Um, forming judgments, being stagnated in my own thinking, um, when all of a sudden I had this flash where everything froze and everybody looked at me and I could see my own face looking back at me from all of these individuals. And I had this really deep realization that we were all one being having a simultaneous experience of ourselves in different forms. 
And so, you know, that caused me to question, how do I want to meet myself on the path? If everybody that I meet is simply another aspect of myself through this concept of, you know, uh, universal oneness, then how do I want to show up and meet um, the aspect of me that is so diametrically opposed to how I'm manifesting today? And that, again, has shaped and framed the work that I do out in the world. Um, I'm a work in progress like everyone else, and I and I get stuck in those old ways of thinking, but I at least now have a foundational point that I can keep returning back to as I'm going through this process of evolving my own consciousness. Hmm. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a quote in here that I like, and, I, and you can connect it, but it's, it's an Einstein quote, yeah. you know? He says, uh, a human being is part of the whole we call the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself in the thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical illusion of his consciousness. This illusion is a prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only the few people nearest us our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living beings and all nature. Yeah. Did you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> I did. And, and so I had, um, I had been talking through a number of concepts in the book um, with other people, and I've had these discussions with people for a long time, for the past several decades. And somebody pointed out that quote to me, and they said, well, Einstein said the same thing, and they sent me a copy of that quote. And and so when I was writing the book, I, I wanted to put that in because it's significant um, in, in that science is continually showing up um, to demonstrate that what we've always known is true as indigenous people, you know, that uh, indigenous intelligence that has been called primitive and savage. Science is continuously showing up to demonstrate that, um, you know, those things are actually proving themselves out scientifically. We now know that we are part of one living creation. Science has demonstrated that. And no matter how often we've tried to to break ourselves down into identifiable parts, uh, we find out that there is really no separation that exists. And so um, when Einstein was, was talking about that, and he's not the only um, one who talked about that. Max Planck, who's also a Nobel laureate, talked about um, that there is no matter as such in the way that we understand matter to be, that we're all really on a much deeper level part of one living creation. And so um, the importance of understanding that, you know, not only experientially, but, you know, scientifically, um, it's being demonstrated over and over again that we are much more than the limited view of what we allow ourselves to be. And our ability to craft a future that is based on the potential of who we can become has to um, be um, separated from who we believe we have been and have had the ability to be based on those limited understandings. So if we want to truly move beyond where we've been, then we have to be willing to let go of that so that we can become who we're capable of being. 
there's another quote that I saw recently that I really like, and it's it's p- applicable to so many situations that we all um, face in our lives, is that when something is really good, you know, we, we, we experience something that we feel is good, it becomes really comfortable for us, and we build a life there in that place. It's really hard to let go of that in order to become great. And we have within our potential as human beings, within our potential as spiritual beings, to imagine a way of being in relationship to one another that's far better than anything we've envisioned in the past. And so in order to do that, we have to understand how we've been shackled by the past and take those shackles off so that we can move forward into a future that is more in alignment with what our true hopes and dreams are for mm. ourselves and for future generations. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> here's another one. <laughs> you, it's just loaded with this stuff. Uh, the author uh, Scott Momaday. Mm-hmm. We are what we imagine. Our very existence consists in our imagination of ourselves. Our best destiny is to imagine at least completely who and what and that we are. The greatest tragedy that can befall us is to go unimagined. Imagination, that's the end of that quote, and you go on and you say, imagination is a powerful force. We tap into our imagination. We are actively engaging the process of creation. We create by bringing something new into our field of possibility, breathing life into it, and calling it into form. Mm. Yeah, one of my favorite stories, um, uh, this Anishinaabe um, woman, Doreen Day, who's uh, Medewin, um one of the uh, Medewin, um water grandmothers, she uh, comes to visit our community quite frequently, and we share a lot of um, a lot of teachings with them because we, again, were one people before we were separated um, by acts of conquest. And so um, one of the things that she talks about is she does a lot of repatriation work. And what repatriation work is is going in and reclaiming um, the remains of our ancestors that are being kept in these really horrific and gruesome museum displays and in boxes in schools to be examined because our our people were put under a microscope um, and were treated as less than human in so many really barbaric ways and so we're we're you know going and um, finding those ancestors who have been brutalized in that way and bringing them home and placing them to rest where they belong with their own people and um, when the remains of an ancestor are brought home, we don't leave them at all. Like we never leave them alone. Um, we always sit with them and pray with them and and um, stay with them until we're able to complete the ceremony to repatriate them, to put them back into the ground from which they came uh, next to their own relatives. And so during the process of of sitting with one of these ancestors, because there's a lot of things that come to people who are doing this work while they're sitting with these ancestors that they they communicate um with them and there was one woman who um young woman who was sitting with a an ancestor overnight and praying um with him and she kept hearing hearing him say to her 
um, this phrase that she could only pick up parts of. And um, when the rest of the people came back in the morning, she told them about that, and a couple of other people picked up other words. And one of them finally said, that sounds like the way that elders used to talk when I was a little girl. And so they brought in their oldest speaker, and they sat down with that that individual and, and told them what they were hearing. And what that ancestor was saying to that young woman was, we dreamed you into the future. And so when we think about the responsibility that those ancestors held towards us, that they dreamed us into being, they, um, you know, that they envisioned who we would become in the future, um, we have a responsibility to honor their visioning of us by living the fullest lives that we can live. My ancestors didn't die for me to remain oppressed. You know, my ancestors didn't give their lives in order for um, me to stand in solidarity with their suffering. They they gave their lives for me so that I could become who I was meant to be in the world. And so indigenous people could become who they were meant to be as part of the entire creation. Um, and so when we think about that responsibility that we have for visioning, um, we have a responsibility for visioning something even better for the generations that are yet to come. We have to hold them in our mind as we wish for them to be. We have to envision the type of world that we want them to inhabit. And then we have to hold that image, breathe life into it, and keep building upon it until they can walk into that as flesh and blood and become who they were meant to be, who we dreamed they could be. Um, which means that we have to create a new dream and vision together for what that's going to look like for them. Okay, and I and that actually what you're just talking about is in uh, your part two of your book. So we've sort of moved from part one to part two, I think. Uh, and and I'm hoping we can get to three and four, but we'll get to four anyway. I guarantee yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so. The uh, there's a there's a section in your book called uh, uh, decolonizing. Mm. Can you speak to that? Well, you know, I just want to point out that you know this this concept of decolonization is much bigger than the snippets that I was able to include in this larger body of work. We could write volumes on decolonization. And so it is not an exhaustive look at decolonization by any stretch of the imagination. I, I call it decolonization light. You know, it's just a, an overview because this really is an introduction, you know, that future works will go much deeper into some of these things. But this is really just an introduction to um, these ways of being and, and these understandings. And so um, you know, we have all, it doesn't matter where we come from, even if we're part of the colonizer set, uh, our minds have all been indoctrinated with these ideas that are really in alignment with the illusion of separation. They are really in alignment with this um, false sense of entitlement and superiority. And not only over one another as human beings, but as human beings over the rest of creation. And so the work of, of, 
breaking ourselves free from the reservation of the mind and breaking these shackles that we've been operating under involves an intensive process of decolonizing our minds, decolonizing the way that we think and engage the world. Um, you know, there's there's so many things within that section and within the larger work of decolonization um, that we could talk about. We could we could do you know a whole year of shows on decolonization. Uh, and yes, magazine just ran a feature on decolonization uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, um, that featured stories from people of color talking about ways to decolonize. I just went to see the Black Panther movie, and oh, yeah. one of my favorite lines in the movie is is when the um, princess the um, is is working at her computer, and the gentleman from the CIA wakes up because he's you know been sleeping because he was he was wounded, and comes up behind her without her realizing it, and she says, "Don't scare me like that, colonizer." You know, and, um, you know, I was probably the only one cracking up in the movie theater um, in Bangor, Maine, when when that line, it just kind of skimmed over the heads of most other people because um, people don't realize how deeply they've been indoctrinated by these ideologies of colonization, which really um, at their heart are the foundations of genocide slavery and all of the most abominable behaviors that human beings have engaged in throughout history. Hmm. And uh, there's another section. Uh, you in uh, one of the sections, it's uh, women are the water bearers of the universe. Let's talk about that one. Yeah, and I, I love the opening of that chapter, and I, I reread it over and over again because I think that. Um, it's really critical. Do you want to read a section from the beginning of that chapter? It's just even the opening paragraph. I read it um, when I spoke at the Women's March in Augusta, um, just the beginning of that section. I'll just start at the... It says, uh, I've been taught that the women uh, nurture life into being We are the creators of life and the protectors of the life that we create. Women possess a unique magic. As women, we are able to call forth life from the other side and cultivate that life in the quiet space below our hearts. Within our bodies, we hold an opening to the divine, a portal that allows souls to enter into this world. Because we are connected to the divine through the space governed by our hearts, We are also the keepers of divine intuition and heart-based wisdom. Thus, the teachings that we carry are essential for keeping our societies spiritually healthy and emotionally balanced. Yeah, in our traditions, um, women are the keepers of birth and death. And so when we think about our, um, our lives, when we think about the things that inspire us to reach beyond the um, banality of our physical form, right? So we we think about the things that cause us to stretch beyond what our ideas are about who we are and where we are in relation to the rest of life. Um, when we're thinking about birth, that um, a woman's body brings forth life if we believe that physical beings are um, inhabited by spirit, then 
that spirit enters into this world through the body of the woman. And so we've always been recognized within our cultural traditions as the keepers of divine intuition and heart-based wisdom, that the baby grows listening to the beat of our heart, that the baby is, is being um, really programmed um, by that heart-based rhythm as it's, as it's being um, developed in the womb. And so the role of feminine energy and masculine energy in the world uh, has distinct characteristics that I don't believe are gender-specific. I think that we all have masculine and feminine energy within us. And once we understand the dynamics of the masculine and the feminine within us, we start getting a greater understanding about how those two energies work in concert with one another in order to um, balance our lives, balance our way of being in the world. And so the feminine is intuitive. There's um, teachings in there that I received from um, one of the uh, Mi'kmaq clan mothers about the words for husband and wife, the word for um for husband is the one who takes me under his skin, right, or blanket. And the word for wife is the one who I bring close to my heart. And so that's symbolic of the external and internal um, relationship between masculine and feminine energies, that the feminine energy is intuitive, it's internal, it's heart-based, it's life-nurturing, life-sustaining, life-protecting. And it is the basis for our actions out in the external world. So the feminine imagines um, and visions and cultivates ideas about how we're supposed to engage the outside world. And then the masculine takes those ideas and puts them into action out in the external world. So if I was only made up of feminine energy, I could have all of these great ideas, but I would never manifest them out into the larger external world. And so it's the feminine energy within me that allows me to sit in that intuitive space to really sink into that heart-based space within my own self and bring forth you know, the guidance that leads me to action out in the world, but it's the masculine energy within me that allows me to take that and actually do the work out in the world that manifests it physically. And so we both have those two aspects within us. And, um, you know, we need to balance them. When we talk about two-spirit in our traditional ways, it has nothing to do with sexual orientation. It's about the balancing of energies within us. We honored our two-spirit individuals because we recognized that they had come to peace with and they had balanced the masculine and feminine energies within them and were able to bring forth whatever was needed in that moment to help support the life outside of us. If somebody needed loving and nurturing care, they were able to bring that forth without being trapped by any gender identity. If somebody needed, you know, some actual physical help out in the world, well, they were able to bring that forth without any entrapment by gender identity. And so, you know, when we look at these energies, the masculine and the feminine, and we look at the trajectory of our history of shared 
um, history of violence, you know, and this deep wounding that has occurred, it corresponds directly to the stripping of the feminine within our societies. And so we have this stripping away of the feminine, this condemnation of the feminine, the burning of the feminine, the drowning of the feminine, the destruction of the feminine that is followed by centuries of war and violence and acting in ways that does not honor life. And that brings me to the next question I wanted to know a little bit more about. You mentioned uh, uh, chaos theory. Yeah. Tell, Tell me about that. About chaos theory. Chaos theory. <laughs> the, the chaos. Where should we begin? <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, chaos theory, I think, is is something that I became um, really intrigued by when I was in my late turns, teens and early 20s. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've always been a bit of a nerd. So um, I really became intrigued by that because I wanted to understand um, how we manifest our reality out in the world? How is that attached to this larger body of information that's floating around out there that seems to be in chaotic movement that then bursts into form in front of us? And so I really started studying um, chaos theory and looking at some of these concepts of quantum physics. And Edward Lorenz was the person who discovered this butterfly effect of chaos theory. And so what he determined was that even the smallest movement, like the flapping of the wings of a butterfly, could compel the energy uh, and and um, allow it to build to the point where it manifested in a storm on the other side of the world. And so when we think about that in relation to the way that we engage life, that when we think, we're creating an energetic frequency. When we speak, we're creating an energetic frequency. When we breathe, whether we breathe a sigh of relief or a frustrated, you know, huff, um, that we are creating an energetic frequency. And so um, what seems to be chaotic motion, things erupting, you know, how did this storm erupt on the other side of the planet? People don't trace it back to the flapping of the wings of a butterfly on the other side of the world. And so when we start understanding our engagement with chaos, when we start understanding that there is order to chaos, that what appears to be chaotic movement is actually being shaped and defined by the energy that we release into the world, then we start understanding probably for the very first time our powers as co-creators of the reality that we're living in. Okay, so then that brings me to my next question. You say uh, you have the 80-10-10 rule. Yeah, um, and, I, and I, um, this is related to the section in the book talking about warrior philosophies. Um, we have this warrior, um, one of the words for warrior in our language, which really corresponds to a philosophy which is um, called Samognus. And what that is, is um, stepping into the flow of harm to obstruct, disrupt, and stop the flow of harm, to keep it from harming you and your loved ones, um, but doing so with just enough force to stop the harm without harming the other. And so what that does, what that teaches us is that we don't need to allow ourselves to be harmed. You know, we have 
um, the right and the responsibility to stop harm from coming our way, but we do not have a right to harm another because all life is sacred. And so that when we stand in the protection of life, we are honoring the sacred and we cannot honor the sacred and stand in protection of life and then harm the lives of others. And so we do need to be doing that work. Uh, we need to be engaging, you know, a certain percentage of our energy in stopping the flow of harm that's coming towards us. And we also, um, you know, need to be taking specific action um, to address some of those wrongs. But the majority of what we um, need to be focusing on, the 80% of that 80-10-10 rule, is we need to be envisioning and bringing into form the world that we wish to inhabit. Um, if we truly believe that energy creates movement and that movement manifests into form and that form creates our reality, then we have to be willing to take responsibility for what type of energy we're putting out in the world. If all we're doing is pointing out what's wrong, if all we're doing is condemning um, what we don't want, if all we're doing is fighting against that, then we are feeding the very thing that we hope to or are seeking to eliminate. And so we need to be investing the majority of our energy, the majority of our visioning uh, into imagining and bringing into form the world that we want to inhabit. Okay. And then I'm, I'm going to try to get these sections in because okay. we're, we're running. You talk about core values. Yeah. Yeah. Expand on that. Oh, goodness. Um, so you want your book? <laughs> there's a whole section in here on core values um, that talks about the difference between, um, you know, indigenous values that are based on what we call that uh, Skijinawebamasawagan, which is that indigenous way of life, and the um, values of the larger society that really are based on these colonial ideas of separation and entitlement and superiority. And so when we look at the distinctions between those two, there are some really critical um, departures that exist. Um, for instance, we believe in rugged individualism as part of the mainstream society. That, you know, who, he who dies with the most toys wins and that that is the symbol of wealth and success according to um, these westernized or, you know, Euro-American ideas of, of success. Um, when you look at that from a Native American perspective, from an indigenous perspective, at least um, in the way that I was raised, um, we, we view success as a communal measure. Um, we look at ourselves in relation to our entire community. And so if we're truly steeped in our own traditional values, um, then we understand that we cannot truly be okay unless everyone is okay. We have um, these ter two terms, alabizu and mamabizu. Mamabizu is, you know, I have enough meaning I have enough to live my life with dignity, with a, you know, a sense of well-being. I have enough food. I have enough shelter. I have enough love. And, um, you know, alabizu is everyone has enough. So we all have enough. Um, that's that communal value. And so when we go down through um, these different value systems where instead of, you know, glorifying youth, we honor and respect our elders, the wisdom that they're 
bringing um, in, instead of looking at the superficiality of how somebody presents in the world, we look deeper to see what it is that they have to offer us on a much more fundamental level. And so there's all of these different things, you know, cooperation versus competition, which is rampant in our society, patience versus aggression, um, listening as opposed to trying to be heard. The, we live in the world of the, you know, five minutes of fame uh, where everybody wants to be a reality TV star. They all want to be heard, and whoever asserts their position with the most force and authority is viewed as being, um, you know, the authority on that individual thing. And it doesn't matter if what they're saying is true or not. It doesn't matter if it um, harms other people. It doesn't matter if it has all of these negative consequences. You know, all that matters is being heard, where we value sitting down and listening and trying to create understanding. This whole concept of Indian time is tied to that. Indian time is is really about taking the time required to make good decisions. It's not an excuse for being late. You know, it's about really contemplating, taking into counsel, taking uh, into the circle a challenge or a problem and, and allowing every voice to be heard and continuing to go through all of the levels of that particular challenge until a decision is made that honors all of the community, that honors and protects and sustains life. And then we've got like maybe 10 minutes or so to go. Uh, there's a section on the, the four foundations of self-determined societies. Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that we really need to look at is our attachment to these systems of domination and colonization and how they are impacting our lives and our ability to be able to frame and to create the type of world that we want to inhabit. And so I, I can't remember off the top of my head the order that I have them in, um, but you know we have um, four actual foundations of sovereignty um, in the book, and one of those is educational sovereignty. And so when we think about the way that our children are being raised, we think about the educational system that is guiding them. Um, we have to recognize that it's guiding them to be in alignment with the current system that's destroying our ability and our capacity to live um, on this earth. And so we need to also uh, allow our children to become creative, critical thinkers, to encourage them to question the way things are and to be able to have the courage to envision the way that they could be going forward. And unfortunately, our current educational system doesn't allow for that to happen. Um, we also need to seriously look at the issue of water sovereignty because we are being colonized right now all over the world in regard to our water. Um, water is being sucked up daily by corporations like Nestle, where individuals who have a water source in their community are being denied access to that water so that others can take it away from them and sell that back to them. That is somebody colonizing our very right to exist. And then you have the CEO of that company saying that water, access to water is not a human right. That means that life itself 
is not a human right. And so when we think about the protection of our waters, not only from contamination and destruction, but from those who are colonizing our waterways, um, we need to really stand up as a global society and proclaim our sovereignty over water because water is the key to life on this planet. And if we do not have access, free access to healthy sources of water, then we are not going to be able to continue to live. Um, Another aspect that we need to look at is food sovereignty. Um, Our food has been grossly contaminated by um, mass production. um, We have not made food stability a reality for people through mass production. In fact, we have more hunger now in the world than we ever had before. And our um, soils are being destroyed by um, monoculture agriculture that we have, you know, where they're growing these singular crops that need to be so completely contaminated so that pests don't wipe out the entire crop that it's destroying the nutrient base of the soil so that we're destroying potable soil and creating these desert situations, um, which is really um, a threat to all life on the planet. The other thing is the fourth one is energy sovereignty. So when we think about all of the wars that have been enacted um, over the fossil fuel um, production and the possession of fossil fuels and the control of fossil fuels, which have been allowed far beyond their expiration date to be the majority – used by the majority of the population to create energy when we have sustainable healthy, clean energy sources that are out there, um, we are enslaved by these energy corporations. If we truly hope to be able to create a better pathway towards the future, we need to escape that enslavement and claim sovereignty over the ways that we um, produce energy within our local systems. Okay. Um, if you have one, we've got maybe one or two minutes left. Um, if you have one thought that you think is most important about your book, uh, go ahead and tell us what that is. Yeah, well, at the end of the book, there's a chapter on prophecy that talks about a number of different Native American prophecies and um, what are our responsibilities while living in a time of prophecy, that there are clear indications that we are now living in a time of prophecy. And so is our is our responsibility to simply observe that we are in that time Or do we have a responsibility to engage this time by using all of the tools that are outlined in the book in order to create a pathway toward a more humane and balanced future? Um, I think that the answer is is clearly obvious, that uh, we weren't offered these signposts, these guideposts um, by our ancestors about um, the times that we would be living in and what our obligations were towards those times, you know, that we we have the ability to create a more loving, balanced um, way of being by working together, by decolonizing our minds, by understanding how we've been fooled by these illusions of separation. And so the whole premise of the book is to help us break free from those shackles, that to escape the reservation of the mind and to finally fully become embodied into the potential that we have as human and spiritual beings to create a new way of being in the world that is far more aligned with life. Okay, very good. 
Well, I'd like to thank you, uh, Sherry, for coming on the show. Uh, and I want to recommend Sherry's book, uh, Sacred Instructions. Uh, it's, a very, it's, it's deep reading, but let me tell you, it's worth it. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to uh, Webinacki Windows. Um, I, uh, I do want to tell you that you can find uh, Sherry's book uh, on, on Amazon, uh, Amazon.com. So you've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We're talking with Penobscot tribal member uh, Sherry Mitchell. And uh, so thank you, uh, Sherry, again. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. Our engineer is John Greenman. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and tune in again next month for another Webinacki Windows. Winter Pledge Drive starts Saturday, uh, February 23rd, 24th, Saturday, March 3rd. Support WERU programming that you enjoy and value. We especially encourage you to become a new WERU member or sustaining member. Thank you so much for those who have already jumped on board. Stand by on, sa- on Saturday, February 24th for your chance to jump on board. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Help kick off WERU's 30th anniversary year by attending our Founders and Friends Stone Soup Lunch on Saturday, March 24th, 1130 to 2 o'clock at the Orland Community Center. If you've been a fan of WERU since the beginning... For our newer listener who wants to celebrate Community Radio 2, this event is for you. Just bring something to add to the soup and conversation, and then have a great time reminiscing about the radio station throughout the years. That's the Founders and Friends Stone Soup Lunch, 